One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, where we demonstrate that simply everything has its own history, like axes, corks and pelicans. Or art, the fart and departure. It's all about the history of leaving. Uh, Similarly, uh, start, which is about the history of starting, uh, heart and the party. Have we done the party before? We've done the party. The history of leaving is really interesting. Um, there are some really wonderful 18th century uh, cartoons or images of the fond farewell, it's called. So, obviously, going back to sailor stuff, because that's yes. all I know about. Of um, your, Often it was a mother or your sister or your partner standing on a shoreline waving with a handkerchief as you sail off and you're never seen again. But the way in which that departure is depicted is really, really interesting and it changes over time. Okay, let's note this down, do the departure. But for the moment, we will be following the... Do you see see the link there? We we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam, who knew that the history of fire is all about communication, heresy, warfare, and being eaten by the devil. I did not know that. You didn't know that. Okay. Well, it is, apparently. (laughs) The man sitting opposite me is... He's a big jumble of bones himself, (laughs) and he's a big jumble of blood, and it all kind of comes out in sort of different shapes and things. You are the the bone domino of, um, of historical playthings. Oh, thank you. I think that's a compliment. And do I have a name? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> you are Professor Extraordinary of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. You are, over there, it is Professor James Daybell. Hello, everyone, and I'm going to give you an anecdote in a minute, but before that, I want to introduce the Charles Darwin of historical evolution, Ooh. the Ooh. famous historical adventurer, Dr. Sam Willis. Hello, Sam. Hello. I. We are going to be talking today about blood and bones, and I am reading Bill Bryson's new book about the body, which is just extraordinary. And he starts it off by asking a very simple question indeed, which I want to ask you now, Sam. Mm-hmm. How much do you think it costs to make a human being? Ooh. Mmm. A lot of money. Well, uh, Bill Bryson was told by his biology teacher that it was about $5. Mm-hmm. And so he thought, it can't be $5. So he went about trying to work it out. And apparently this had already been done before. And there was some festival um, that Benedict Cumberbatch was opening. And they decided as part of this science festival, they would guess how much it would cost to make 
an average person the size of Benedict Cumberbatch. And the way you do it is you work out precisely what we are made of. What's our body consist of? And our bodies consists of all consist of all kinds of chemical elements. And so if you can work out the weight of those, you can then value put a value on them. And apparently we have about £40,000 worth of carbon in us because, uh, we, 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 you know, we're quite expensive. Lots of water in us and water's relatively cheap. But it's about 90-odd thousand pounds worth of chemical elements and bits and pieces like that. And then the estimate is, oh, it's about mm, another hundred and something thousand for the sort of man-hours to sort of put it together. Um, and so uh, an, your average human being of a Benedict Cumberbatch size uh, is about £200,000. Is he an unusually small man? I think he's supposed to be a sort <laughs> of... A, I think he's supposed to be a, an, an average man. Oh, OK, right. Yes. I don't know. I've not met him. We did stay in a, we did stay in a house in Italy uh, very near where he had stayed the week before. So I feel I have been in the footsteps of Benedict Cumberbatch. The expensive footsteps. Expensive footsteps. We're doing Blood and Bones because um, it's Halloween, or it's very close to Halloween, isn't it? It is close to Halloween. And we were inspired by all the goo and the gore yes. and everything we saw. And uh, also, uh, we're going to have this later, a little interview we did with some um, some oh, lovely peeps. The brilliant Forum Field Living History Group, uh, Kyle, Paul and Rory. So a huge shout-out to, to you guys. Uh, can I just give them a quick plug yes. as well? Because they are putting together a new stage show hmm. and they've been in touch talking to me about it and asking advice and things so look out for them they're going to be doing things around the country uh, next year so we do a little interview um with them which is going to yes. come later but we're going to talk a little bit about blood and bones yes. did, did you enjoy halloween and the goriness of it oh i love halloween so well, my, you, do you more enjoy the pumpkinness of it? Jim? Well, I not I I enjoy the Halloweeniness of everything. My daughters, in particular, are so psyched about Halloween. They get so excited about Halloween. Halloween in our house has been planned within an inch of its life about two months ahead of time. We in fact had a sleepover. Two seven-year-old girls, two nine-year-old girls, fully dressed up in costume, makeup. Um, and we went trick-or-treating, they carved pumpkins. But, and I didn't tell you this, I was going to tell you this in the journey to Winchester today, but my seven-year-old absolutely hoodwinked me this Halloween. So we, it had got quite late, they'd been eating lots of sugar, and they went to bed. And my seven-year-old was having her sleepover friend in sleeping with her. And then the other two were staying up a little bit later, and then they were suddenly like, oh! And I came downstairs to find my seven-year-old on the floor with blood all over her wrists and, a, and literally a ten-inch carving knife <laughs> by the side of her. And I just yelled, Julia! Julia! And apparently the other seven-year-old girl was, like, shaking because I was so... Um, Wow, was so you got sort of done. taken, and I totally got done. Oh man, that's that's it tough was, to come back like from. Really bad. Uh, yeah. But the thing was, I could like I felt so scared for her. I literally thought, I actually what I actually thought was that I was supposed to be on duty, mm. and and this had happened on my watch. Um, and yes, so yes, I'm all over Halloween. I in fact went trick or treating. And in our area, uh, the roads around us, we have trick-or-treated for years there. 
and it got particularly good this year and partly because the the neighbors just really get into it mm. dress up their houses and this one terrifying guy just kept well there were two terrifying people one full werewolf costume answered the door. <laughs> like, and just, and just bayed like a wolf at the, really? at, at the young children. Oh, there. And they, you know, and another guy um, was just, they knocked on the door and then he'd been lying in the garden and just sort of got up zombie-like. <laughs> <laughs> it was just, yeah. So I, I'm kind of, I, I am kind of like, I do like Halloween. I threatened to dress up as Harry Potter this year, uh, but wasn't allowed so anyway, blood and bones. We decided yes, we were going to. We were going to. The we there are so very many ways that we can think about blood and bones. Well, and we've done it in the past, haven't we? We've done a we've done a podcast on blood where we looked at all sorts of things. Uh, from I remember talking about bloodline. I remember talking about menstruation. I remember talking about uh, vein maps. Oh, yes. they're amazing oh, things. The, when you take the, the veins the out of someone, and, uh, yes. yeah, that's it. Hunterian museum. Yes. Yeah. So it's like an arterial map, and you take you literally take the arteries out of someone, and then you. Prit stick them somehow onto a piece of plywood and have yeah. them up in your room, so you have like a vein map of a of a person. Oh, I want one of those. Someone you hate. Oh, we've written. Some... <laughs> <laughs> oh, I've got quite a few candidates for that. <laughs> we also wrote a chapter on blood in our book on World War Two, where we talked about blood from the uh, recruitment of recruitment and a sort of way of demonising Jews because, of course, they are... It's all about kosher meat yeah. and sort of and draining the blood out of uh, meat and uh, before you eat it. Um, and then also the history of the Red Cross. Yes, and so the people actually giving blood, recruiting... Yes. ...recruiting people yes. to give blood to help with the soldiers fighting yes. on the front and also the, those wonderful political speeches... Yes. Um, the, where, where, ..where blood is used as a metaphor. Yeah. Um, for courage and so where are you going with blood i was thinking about a couple of things and i just had a, a brainstorm so i'm going to change my plan and pivot oh good i've got this which is wonderful oh what's that oh that looks um stony this was given to me by the magnificent james dilly if you want to know what james dilly does then have a look at ancientcraft.co.uk i met him when i was making my uh, BBC series on the history of weapons and he helped me make a stone axe. This is not it. Um, he made. I made a very, very rough one. Do you remember we actually use it on the shelves, the, the unexpected shelves for our, our live tour? Oh, was that the one you made? Yeah, that, I actually made that out of a piece of flint. I sat down and I used another piece of flint, to a harder piece, to knock that piece into shape and that became an axe which you would then attach to a piece oh. of wood and then you chop down trees with it. But James said to me, just as we left, he said, what you really want, you can take that home and you can put it on your shelves, but what you really want is a polished axe head um, made out of a particularly beautiful green type of stone. And I said, James, I would really like a polished axe head made out of a particular type of green stone. And it took a while. Uh, I transferred him the money there and then. I was so excited about it. And then... Um, Maybe a few months later, this magnificent thing turned Gosh. up, and uh, it's on my desk. I absolutely adore it. Now, the thing about this is that there are no—it's completely smooth, mm. isn't it? It's an axe. It's in the same yeah, prehistoric yeah. axe head shape. It's completely smooth. Hasn't got those very distinctive kind of scoops that you get when you're working flint. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like right? flint axe, so yeah. this one, you've got the—you make the rough shape using flint, but then you—it's called polishing it. You polish it, so you you use different types of stone to take off smaller and smaller flakes until you can actually make it utterly smooth. And one of the tools that you use in the process of that is 
bone. Ooh. So I just wanted to start off by um, pointing out that bone um, is, a, is a, not just a very important tool, but a really, really subtle one, mm. a really, really subtle one um, in the prehistoric mm. period. So you, you end up with these sto stone, stone things would actually be made by, by bones. And then I've just realised we've got our um, antlery friend uh, yes. up there. <laughs> We're in my shed, and my we shed's full of all shed. sorts of knickknacks that I've acquired. There's an, there's an actual arrow. There is. There's an actual... The, I've not noticed that before. There's an arrow from an English longbow. It's amazing. I'm so used to being in Sam's shed that I don't see all the curiosities here. Mm. But there is also a toucan lamp. There's, yeah, that's really cool. Not made out of a toucan, but... Uh, Velvet toucan. This, this is a bit Halloween-y because we, um, I was once digging around in the attic of a house in Cornwall, mm. uh, which had been recently abandoned by um, a family. Someone had died, and the house had was 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 just as if someone had just walked out. So it it was. Here's a cool fact: a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Full of stuff. Mm. And I went up and I just was poking around in the attic and I saw what I thought was a finger bone. Ooh. And I groveled around, it was very dark, <laughs> and then I pulled out this. So it's, it's, the, it's a fairly magnificent set of antlers. Isn't it? Is. it? Yeah. So that reminds me vividly of a, of a moment in my past, as do most things here. So yes. bone as tools, inspired by my antlers and inspired mm. by my uh, wonderful thing that James made. Thank you, James, and hello. So I want to come at vampires via, men <laughs> via menstruation. Okay. So in our podcast on blood, we talked about the different understandings that people have about blood. And blood is often seen as something that's connected to life, but it's also seen as something that can be toxic and corrosive, particularly when it's used to demonise women. And one of the things that we talked about there was the way in which menstruating women and menstrual blood was damaging. You know, and you go back to classical tradition and menstruating women anywhere near seeds means that crops don't grow and all sorts of and you shouldn't have um, sex with women while they're menstruating and all of that sort of thing. Um, that's sort of blood as corrosive but what I want to talk about now is blood as something that is 
rejuvenating and that is is sort of positive and and in a way connect this to vampires right um partly because it's people um people drinking blood and i want to i've been reading and have you ever we, drunk blood uh, my own blood i've sucked i've sucked blood and i've eaten blood sausage but i haven't drunk i haven't drunk a pint of blood have you no 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 and i i really wouldn't want to but when when we wrote our book on the Tudors, we wrote a chapter on cannibalism. And we were reading uh, a book by Richard Sugg called Mummies, Cannibals and Vampires, which came out in 2011. It's brilliant. Um, and there's a, there's a passage in there where he talks about a report from Pliny the Elder, where Pliny the Elder is describing a scene in the Colosseum where there's been a gladiatorial combat and he describes what happens afterwards. The man, sprawled at such an odd angle beside the injured fighter, has his face pressed against a gaping tear in the gladiator's throat. He is drinking blood fresh from the wound. Why? He suffers from epilepsy and is using a widely known cure for his mysterious affliction. So the idea then is that blood treated in the right kind of way, when it's pure, is seen as medicinal. It has medicinal properties. And throughout history, through, I mean, you can follow this all the way through to sort of blood transfusions and blood plasma and that kind of thing. But there are all sorts of examples throughout history of people using blood in this way. So I'll give you some, some examples of this. Um, in 1483, King Louis XI of France um, reportedly had meals of blood collected from healthy children. Um, and the idea was that he thought that he would live forever if he was able to sort of drink this. Uh, he, 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 was, um, he had leprosy and that he thought this would cure him. Um, we don't know about the next one, but Pope Innocent VIII, when he was dying in 1492, was allegedly given the blood of three boys by a Jewish Physician. Now we don't know whether that's true, whether it's a sort of anti-Semitic piece of, um, of, of sort of slander. Um, but one of the things that I think is really interesting is how people have have treated blood and how they've prepared blood. And there is a there's a medieval recipe, uh, a very detailed medieval recipe where they talk about the preparation of blood. And I thought that you would love this, so I, I, I read this specifically for you. And the idea is that what you want to do is you want to, you want to, to sort of have... You want to take the right extracts out of the blood in order that it maketh old age lusty and to continue in the like estate a long time. OK, so here it is. Take human blood, put it in a glass file and keep it covered in dung for 40 days. Then take it out and put it inside a copper vessel and heat. Let it cool for a day and night. Then scoop off what is left on the top and is clear. Afterwards, put what you have taken off in a glass lamp bowl and distill it through a filter. Once distilled, keep it and mix the blood with the same quantity of ardent water, aqua ardens. Then distill the mixture in an alembic. 
the water that remains is better than all other waters in the world for healing wounds. Mm. Uh, Savlon for me, please. Yeah. <laughs> yes. TCB. Yes, exactly. <laughs> anyway, there's a sort of a little sort of little sort of snapshot of of sort of medicinal blood via vampires. I love it, and it does make me think that in the past, back in the day, says in the, the past, says the professional historian. Yes. The, the, the more creative you are in inventing something or getting <laughs> something out of something else, the more likely you are to be able to make money. You need to, to do something very strange like that and then say, well, this is obviously going to have some pretty unique properties. Yes. Uh, and therefore it is going to have a particular value. Yes, so sort of emperor's new clothes, kind of snake oil type. Exactly, stuff. Yes. much like yes, much like the bone powder removed from the heads of the martyrs of Otranto. Ah, is that, <laughs> is that a nice cue? Yes. And, my God, we're on fire today. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, T- tell me about that. Well, so you, you, it's it's um, it's it's the summer of fourteen eighty, James. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm pulling myself together now. It's very hot. You're in Italy. And you are being attacked by a massive force of Turks. Yes, I can imagine it. The you, you, you're in Otranto. Yep. And you, you've been doing very well. Unfortunately, have I had a good dinner? Uh, no, you've you've terrified. <laughs> okay. You're absolutely bricking it with for very very good reasons. Finally, the um, Turks break through the defences in the citadel. Primarily, this is why you're so frightened. And the Turks are fighting their way through the town, so you can hear them coming. So what you do is you take um, a bit of shelter in the cathedral, upon which the Turks arrive. They found Archbishop Stefano Agricolo, Stefano Pendinelli, fully vested and crucifix in hand. So he's standing there waiting for them. Then... The archbishop was beheaded before the altar. His companions were sawn in half and their accompanying priests were all murdered. After desecrating the cathedral, the Turks gathered the women and children to be sold into slavery. Men over 15 years old, small children and infants were slain. This massacre became known, um, very, very widely known. Not long afterwards, the bodies were discovered and their bodies were kept safe. Despite their victory at Otranto, the the Turks never invaded southern Italy. And as time passed, this was looked back on as the key moment in the defence of Italy. Even though they even they lost this battle and Otranto was sacked, the key moment in the turning back, and that these eight hundred thirty people were executed because they refused to convert to Islam. Hmm. So it was used as a story to talk about the the strength of Christian faith against overwhelming odds. Recently, one of the skulls of the martyrs of Otranto, so the bodies are all still in Otranto Cathedral, yep. one of the skulls was, was discovered, was investigated by researchers, and they found out that it's got... Um, a very large number of holes in it. In fact, there are 16 perfectly round holes in the top of the cranium. Some of those holes had, have punctured all the way through, but not all of them have. And research has been studying it, and what they think is going on here is that they are harvesting the bone powder from the cranium of one of the martyrs of Otranto 
because of the story that's associated with it. There is a very long and established history of humans consuming human bone powder. Yeah. Um, uh, particularly, there's some stuff in Bulgaria at the moment. They've been doing some investigations to some, into some Neolithic settlements, and they've discovered a sort of beige powder around some of the pottery, and they believe that to be human bone powder. <clears throat> but here we've got an example, and this is a unique example of bone powder being taken from the bones of people that got a story attached to them, that got a history attached to them, because they believe that that powder as a medicinal uh, ingredient will be, be so so much more potent. Goodness me. Interesting. And that made me think about mass graves. Yes. Um, I've talked a little bit before about the mass grave I excavated or with a team on my own with a team of international archaeologists on the beach in Antigua. Mm. Started off my TV career that where a Nelson's hellhole. A Nelson's Caribbean hellhole. Yes. You can watch it on YouTube. Have a look at it. Um, it's all to do with 18th century sailors being struck down by illness on the ships and being rowed, I mean, anchored offshore because everyone's a crook, everyone's ill, and they are rowed ashore and they're buried at the back of a beach in English Harbour in Antigua. We excavated them, found out what was wrong with them. Surprisingly, lots of them had lead poisoning, which was interesting. But ever since then, I've been really interested in mass graves. We wrote a bit about mass graves in our Viking book as well, the chapter yes, on good. teeth. Yeah. Um, what was in Repton? In was the Ridgeway Hill one. There are two really mm. important Viking mass graves in the UK. I love the fact because I, I think if you say to people, oh, you know, we're going to be doing some work on mass graves, where would you expect mass graves to be? And you might expect them to be in Central Europe. You might expect them to be associated with um, antiquity. You might expect them to be associated with the First War, the Second War, Second World War. There are some really fascinating mass graves in the UK. Um, two of them are Viking. One of them, the Ridgeway Hill burial pit. We've got 54 skeletons buried around 970 to 1025. So that's a good hundred and something years after the Vikings have actually arrived to be believed to be associated with warfare between the established Anglo-Saxons and the Vikings, who were also established by then, but it's wars over existing existing controlled territory. What's interesting about those burials is that there are 54 skeletons and then piled very neatly across the other side of the pit are there 51 heads. Three heads are missing, uh, but they've all been decapitated. Then there's another one in Reptum in Derbyshire, um, 264 bodies. This is a much older, much, much older Viking, Viking burial. And 80% of them are men. This is, is really believed to be associated with an army. There's always been some debate over what period these skeletons came from. And that's because the bones were giving some slightly conflicting evidence to the osteoarchaeologists. But it's all recently been solved, it's been put to bed. It's certain that these bodies are linked with the Vikings overwintering in Repton in the 9th century. But the, the mystery came about because a lot of them had been eating fish. And when you eat fish, you consume carbon, which is much, much older than it, it would be if you ate terrestrial animals. Mm. And so a lot of these guys had lived off a diet of fish, and that had... Um, created some slightly skew-if results for the tests on the bones, which suggested that some of them may have been as much as a century or a century and a half older. Whereas, in fact, it wasn't. They were all 9th century, but they'd been eating fish. Hmm. There are... It's not just Vikings 
where we have mass graves in the UK. It's a really lovely one. It's recently, I found it on a blog on the University of Durham's page, really interesting, about the remains of Scottish soldiers taken prisoner after the 1650 Battle of Dunbar, which I knew nothing about at all. So I've really enjoyed reading this. You can um, you can follow this up on the University of Durham's website, and I'd absolutely um, urge you to do it. And it's thought that around 1,700 Scottish soldiers died of malnutrition, disease and cold after being marched over 100 miles from the southeast of Scotland to Durham in northeast England, where they were imprisoned in Durham Cathedral and Castle. By then, it had been disused for several years. So, yeah, there are mass graves of children, yep. all sorts of things around the UK. And I'd urge you all to just, just take a bit of time and do some of your own reading about mass graves in the UK. There's that other one that we came across for the Vikings book, the Ridgeway Hill mass grave near Weymouth, yep. which was discovered in 2009 by a group of Oxford archaeologists. And what's extraordinary about that is that they were all decapitated. Mm -hmm. And... And if you look at the evidence, there are marks of violence on the torso, especially around the neck and shoulders, suggest that people have something... This was some sort of very bloodthirsty um, sort of battle here. Um, and radiocarbon dating for that dates it to the sort of end of the Viking period in, in the UK. So towards the end, 970 to about 1025. And... What's interesting there is what they've done with the teeth. And we, we talk about this in our chapter on teeth. And teeth, the different markings that you have on teeth allow you to look at ethnicity. And so they were able to show the identities of these men were not from, were not from Britain, but were from Norway, Sweden, Iceland, the Baltic states and, and Russia. Uh, which I think is fascinating. Absolutely, yes. yeah. Um, I, I wanted to go a completely different way, with okay. and back from bone, back to back to blood. Uh, we talked about bloodthirstiness, and I was doing a little reading and a little sort of pootling around in my mind as I do, sort of thinking with these things, what do we want to do? What kinds of subjects could we come up with? And I thought blood sports. Mm. So these are sports that... Um, that um, lead to a certain degree of bloodshed uh, because they are violent. And I was Googling around on this and there are human-to-animal blood sports, there are animal-to-animal -animal blood sports and human-to-human -human blood sports. And if you think about the human-to-human -human blood sports, we've already talked about gladiatorial combat, but you can also think of things like boxing and martial arts and... You know, all of those sort of things, uh, any sort of combat sport or, or wrestling where blood is used, um, there are also um, human-to-animal blood sports. Um, and I'm just going to read you a few of them. Um, Badger-tossing, boar-tossing, bullfighting, cock-throwing, fox-hunting, fox-tossing, goose-pulling, hare-tossing, human-baiting... Quite sure what human baiting is. Uh, octopus wrestling. Ooh. I wouldn't want to wrestle an octopus. Do they um, bleed? What, do <laughs> just, a, just a little just point there. Squirt at you. Um, <laughs> wild Sweet. cat tossing. That's not wolf hunting. These are not things that I'd necessarily uh, want to want to engage in myself. And then we have a whole load of animal upon animal. So those ones were basically where humans bait animals and do sort of silly things with them. Um, animal on animal. And these are. Um, quite barbaric, badger baiting, so it's where you set animals on a badger, bear baiting, 
um, boar baiting, bull baiting, camel wrestling, cockfighting, coursing, cricket fighting, cricket fighting. That's almost like flea fighting, isn't it? Mm. Uh, dog fighting. And so it goes on. Hog fighting, insect fighting, jackal, lion baiting. Any cat stuff? Very little cat That's stuff, actually. That's interesting, isn't it? Particularly, Considering how horrible people are, have been to cat Stuff that we've said. But the thing, the thing that, since we're doing our show on the Tudors at the moment, we've got a little bit, there's a bit in the show where we talk about a ring from the Rose Theatre and we talk a little bit about the entertainments that are on the South Bank. One of the things that were alongside the playhouses that were, were bear baiting. Yeah. And bear baiting was very, was very common. In fact, it was felt that bear baiting might even rival the theatre in its popularity. And this is where you'd have a bear and the bear would be tied up and then you would introduce dogs to it and then the dogs would effectively get mauled to pieces by the bear. You release the bear and the bear sort of, you know, they swipe attack them. the bear and the bear swipes them. And bears would have been a relatively rare commodity, a relatively expensive investment for somebody to have. So you don't actually want your bear to be ah. destroyed when you're when no. you're looking after when you're when you're trying to make money out of it. But I have here, in true Daybell fashion, I have a letter from Robert Lanham, uh, who describes the a, a performance put on with bear baiting by Robert Dudley, Earl of Leicester, at Kenilworth Castle in 1575, before the Queen. I'll read it to you. Thursday, the 14th of July, and the sixth day of Her Majesty's coming, a great sort of band-dogs, in other words, mastiffs, were then tied in the outer court and 13 bears in the inner. God, that's incredible. Well, the bears were brought forth into the court. The dogs set to them to argue the points, even face to face. They had learned counsel also on both parts, what they may they be counted partial, that are retained but to one side, I know not. Very fierce, both one and the other, and eager in argument. I bet they were eager in argument. If the dog in pleading would pluck the bear by the throat, the bear with traverse would claw him again and would claw him again by the scalp, confess on a list, but avoid it, could not, that was bound to the bar, and his counsel told him that it could be to him no policy in pleading. It's a bizarre sort of, you know, um, legal sort of metaphors being used about this, about debate and arguing. Therefore, the fending and proving with plucking and tugging, scratching and biting by plain tooth and nail on one side and the other, such expense of blood and leather, and there between them as the months licking, I think, will not recover and yet remain as far out as ever they were. It was a very pleasant sport of these beasts to see the bear with his pink eyes leering after his enemy's approach, the nimbleness and weight of the dog to take his advantage and the force and experience of the bear again to avoid the assaults. If we were bitten in one place, how he would pinch it in another to get free, that if he were taken once... Then what shift with biting, with clawing, with roaring, tossing and tumbling, he would work to wind himself free from them, and when he was loose, to shake his ears twice or thrice with the blood and the slather about his physiognomy was a matter of goodly relief. That's quite an extraordinary sort of description of a scene of bear baiting there. Mm. Uh, there were various other 
practices, uh, whipping blind bears. Ooh. Would you believe? Well, certainly we could do something on animal cruelty, couldn't we? Yes. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, this takes us on, in a sort of roundabout way, blood and bones, to our trip to Chalk Valley History Festival and to our friends from Forum Field Living History Group. So again, just to tell you about Kyle, Paul and Rory, uh, who we met in Cambridge earlier this year, and they were very, very active at Chalk Valley, doing all sorts of things. We ended up doing a, a duel with them, being That's their seconds. Um, and I came across uh, the group when they were... Um, when they were talking to people about their role as barber surgeons in the late Elizabethan period, so late 16th century, early 17th century. So let's have a listen to that interview. Here they are. Hello, everyone. We are at the wonderful Chalk Valley History Festival, and Sam and I are taking some time out to have a look around the site. And I am with a couple of people who I met last week in Ca near Cambridge at Wimpole Hall. I am here with Paul, Kyle and Rory, uh, who together uh, have a company called Foreign Field Living History. And the last time I saw you guys, you were dressed in a very different way. You were in World War II costumes, weren't you? Uh, we were, yes. Uh, we were a multi-period group, um, covering about six periods of history at the moment. You caught us in the 40s and today you catch us in the 1440s. And this, this is absolutely terrific. We are in the middle of a field in Wiltshire, surrounded by tents and surrounded by living history. It is amazing. There are so many different periods represented here. And these guys have been busy all day. They've just come back from a battle in a field. They've just got out of their armour. In fact, in fact you're, you're still in your armour. You can hear, if you can hear that, that is Rory's armour. He's in full, full gear. So, and you've been busy all day, guys, haven't you? Uh, yes, we've been speaking to the public about mainly about the arms and armour, the weapons of the time period, but also some of the more social aspects of medieval life, medicine, society, um, clothing, eating utensils, all the everyday sort of things that went on during the Wars of the Roses. Brilliant. And when I first, when I first came across these guys, uh, they were performing uh, surgery, yes, weren't indeed. you? So we've got all sorts of implements in front of us, including a very ghastly-looking saw. Indeed. So talk, talk, to us about, talk to us about the kit that you've got here. Well, this is some of the equipment of the barber surgeon, the sort of person who would provide most people's medical care. Doctors were few and far between in medieval England, being university-educated, not many universities around at this time, so their skills and their knowledge is very valuable. So we know that there was a barber, a barber surgeon on the Mary Rose, and we have a, a chest that survives, don't we? Indeed. His equipment is some of the best preserved we have, because you know it's exactly from a surgeon date in a certain time. Yeah, we know that was from a set date, a set time period, and it was on board the Mary Rose yep. on that date when it sank, and in a military and maritime ship, so we know the sort of things that were going on there, and the kind of injuries, medical conditions that yep. would have been used by his patients. It's quite extraordinary. There's even an ear scoop. Have you seen that? The ear scoop to get wax out of, out of your ear. It's like a little hooked ear scoop. But what if, talk to us about what you've got in front of in front of you there. So I have a small array of equipment, the typical things that will be found in a barber surgeon's yep. shop, so scissors, razors, combs, that kind of thing. But because they're also providing medical treatment, some of the things that 
come into medieval health, such as implements for bloodletting to make the humours be balanced, dentistry because they would also provide tooth extractions, tooth pulling. that kind yes. of thing. And, and what's this thing here? This thing, it's a small uh, sort of oval Is of copper. copper. Yep, a yep. copper sheet copper with right. many holes pierced into it. This is a copy of one that was found in a monastic uh, cemetery in Fishergate in York. And it's believed to be a, a hip brace, not a hip, a knee brace. Oh, is it? Yeah. So, so what basically what we've got is a tiny little oval piece of brass metal which is probably about would you say an inch and a half across and then, so. and then a couple of inches and it's 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 buckled so it's like a belt buckle and then it's got oops, there we go and it's got holes in it so and that would have been used for a knee knee brace they believe so reading the archaeological reports it was found on one of the skeleton's knees right and it, they when they examined the skeleton further they found it had had a very badly dislocated knee during his lifetime his leg had buckled slipped at some point quiet and nasty injury yeah and this was sitting on top of the kneecap likely to act as a brace Possibly also stuffed with herbs, maybe yep. to stop it being inflamed, stop yep. the swelling, and just give him a little bit better quality of life. So when I saw you earlier on, you were doing something rather gruesome to somebody's arm. Indeed. Can you we tell us showing, about that um, and what you were doing? And we have a we have a, <laughs> so we were a willing showing, victim here. I don't have quite all of the equipment to show. It is rather expensive even to buy reproductions of these. But I was demonstrating the procedure of how to amputate a wounded arm. Something that's quite popular with the kids until they actually see it happening. So, say my colleague here has been in a battle or some kind of horrible it's industrial Paul. accident. Yes, Paul. Paul, is, Paul, is, Paul is going to be the victim here. Yep, his lower What's arm. What's happened to Paul? Let us say something quite heroic. He has been slashed with a sword in a battle. His lower arm has been damaged. And so unfortunately, we can't save it. It has to come off. So what do you do? So, the first step would be, unfortunately, to remove the flesh. Take a very large, gruesome-looking curved knife, trim away the flesh around the wounded area so we can get good access to the bone without the sore getting tangled in the flesh and, and the gristle. Has Paul passed out at this point? He's about to. Quite. He's about to. <laughs> now, would Paul have been given alcohol or anything to put him out or something to chew on or would somebody be holding him down? He would quite likely have several of his friends holding him down to stop him thrashing and uh, <laughs> trying to get away. Extra yes. There were painkillers and anaesthetics during this right. time period, but they're relatively expensive. They take, they require very expensive ingredients, and with being the natural products, they may not necessarily work as well as intended. Some may be too powerful, some may be not powerful enough, and as I say, expensive. So a common soldier likely wouldn't be able to afford or have access to them. So go Let, let's let's see it in action. So, having trimmed the flesh away from We've me, trimmed the flesh. We now need to actually saw through the tissue, and I can see we'll he's wincing. wincing uh, both hands on the saw. Walk it off. And, <laughs> and oh, I don't know if you can hear that, but we are we're sawing through. Oh, oh, oh no. Oh, 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 oh. There's the history of bones breaking there. Excellent. Yes. And then the, then the um, there would be bandages applied. Yep. They would attempt to attach um, horsehair uh, ties to the veins, yep. stopping bleeding. They didn't know of circ the circulatory system, but they did know that certain parts of the body had blood and other what they called humours yes. pooled within yeah, them. Yeah. And tying off the four humours. Blood, collar, bile. Blah blah blah. And Indeed. The, the, the body had different a different balance, male and female, 
a different balance which sort of sorted out their, their sort of biology really. Indeed. This was the given particular characteristics. This is the basis of all medieval yes. medicine. A Roman doctor called Galen had written yes. this down. Yes. And with him being a Roman, he must know best. So most <laughs> medieval practices followed him. If Galen yes. said it, it must be true. Yes. Yeah, it was the dominant medical system throughout the 16th century, wasn't it? For for now, quite a while afterwards yes. as well. Now Talk to me about this. You, I, I heard you talking about this earlier on. So you would, this is this is wine here, isn't it? I'm afraid not. It was wine. It was once. wine. It was wine. Um, this is a a sort of circular glass um, vase, I would suppose you yep. describe it. Uh, clear, see-through glass. It's called a Jordan, like right. a river, because it contains liquid. Yep. Um, in this case, I'm afraid it contains urine. Ah, Human urine. A urine sample pot, specimen yep. pot. A specimen jar, indeed. So this is clear, so you can see. You can see the colour of the sample. Check it against a chart that's been written up by learned men who know yep. what they're talking about. If it's, as we know, if you're dehydrated, it's very dark, so drink more water. If it's black, you likely have something very badly wrong with you. If it's yes. blue, you likely have something badly wrong with you as well. All these colours appearing on this chart that does still survive. If it's purple, purple, you're doomed. You're yes. <laughs> um, now you were you were talking earlier on about the application of wine to wounds, indeed. and there was some really interesting stuff you were saying about that. Well, today we know that alcohol contains uh, anti antiseptic, antibacterial yep. properties; it kills germs, etc., etc. Now they had, without microscopes, they had no concept of this these things, but they could observe with the naked eye that uh, these things did some things did work and others didn't. Yep. A military surgeon, I'm going to badly mispronounce his name, but Ambrose Paré, I yes. believe he was called. Yep. He was a military surgeon in the 16th century, and he witnessed that having run out of some of his medical supplies, I believe tar applied to burn injuries, yep. he started to use wine instead. And he noticed the next day that quite a few of the ones he had treated with his original tar remedy yes. uh, were still ill, the wounds were festering, they were dying, whereas the ones he had washed with wine and alcohol were recovering at a much faster rate. And this is the sort of the start of experimental medicine to see what works. Yep. Start of clinical trials, if you will. Excellent. And so he put he put what he applied wine to people's yes, alcohol and school. wine yep. to see what yep. would uh, make sure. Now, one of, I want to talk to you a little bit about living history, because I think one of the things that is so brilliant about this part of the festival is the variety, and I think living history engages people with the past in a way that you don't get from simply reading a book or listening to somebody talk you know you you you're here you're in perfect costume you've got implements around you and people can come up and engage with you and you have such what impresses me is you have such knowledge of the past as well well thank you you're very kind the, the way we see it and the way we kind of operate is that it's much better to see a thing and to feel it and in some cases if you can taste it yep. to really get an understanding of what it's like. Now dressing up and doing this kind of thing, it does give you a flavour but only a flavour of the past yep. but that's still yep. much more alive and exciting than reading it in a book. Yep. No matter how well written or how in deeply how deeply researched it's still just words on a page where seeing it with your own eyes and it happening yep. directly in front of you really does bring it alive and start to make a little bit more sense of why people did what they did why life in these periods was like it was like it was so tell me a little bit about your practice so how do you do the research how do you research the costumes how do you you know you've got very detailed knowledge about medical history from the Wars, War of the Roses onwards. How do you find out about all that? 
mostly from reading books and attending talks yeah. and lectures such as these. Thanks to the internet, a lot of original documents are now made available yeah. without having to, say, go to some far exotic library like we yeah. have to do 50 or 100 years ago. There's quite a lot of books on archive.org, for instance, yes. or Google Books. Yes, yes. Archive.org is brilliant. Exactly. All of these medical texts that would be prohibitively expensive even as a replica yeah. are, massive, are massively available to everyone who just does a Google search for them. And I owe, I owe you a PDF of uh, an article on white gloves, don't you I? You do indeed, yes. <laughs> I've, yes been, I've been on tour for the last week, but I haven't been <laughs> home. So, so, but <laughs> uh, thankfully as well, with the British Library making a lot of their documents yes. available online, you can read it in its original format with illustrations and text and see it firsthand, even though it's been locked in a library yep. for hundreds of years yep. without and anyone if you, seeing it. If you can it. get into the British Library, you know, you can see the original books. Also, if you have access to a university library, there's early English books online and you're able to look at a facsimile of the original. Well, guys, thanks so much for chatting to us and I hope you have a good rest of the festival. You too. You too. Yep. Thank you very thank much. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you. Bye. James, that all brings the glory of Chalk Valley History Festival back to me. Absolutely. We must go again this year. Yeah, you just meet such wonderful people just like that. Um, I hope you've enjoyed our Blood and Bones special, um, it's particularly if it's around Halloween when you're listening to it. And if you do like what you hear, please leave us a review on iTunes. It really, really makes a difference to us, and it doesn't take very long. Please subscribe to the podcast and tell all your friends. We're on Twitter. You can follow me at Dr Sam Willis. And you can follow me at James Daybell. And you can follow the podcast on at Unexpected Pod. You can find out all about what we've got doing, and we are currently on tour. I think we're going to be on tour for the rest of our lives, James. I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> we, we've got all sorts of wonderful dates coming up. Please check us out on the tour page of our historiesoftheunexpected.com website. We're also on Patreon, so you can find us at patreon.com forward slash, you guessed it, histories of the unexpected. We're trying to raise enough money to be able to buy some proper recording equipment so we don't have to record in the shed down the end of my garden, even though I do like it. <laughs> it's lovely. And with Christmas coming up, we've just had a new series of books uh, published on the Romans, on the Tudors, on World War II, on Vikings, as well as our big book, Histories of the Unexpected. And if you go to our website, we are selling signed copies of these, should you so wish to send them to Father Christmas or place them in somebody's stocking or give them to the postman for being such a good uh, post person uh, throughout the year or a teacher or, I mean, everyone should, um, everyone uh, would like one or two or three or four or five. <laughs> the very least you can do, guys, is carry on listening. We couldn't do this without you and we massively appreciate your support and help. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Thanks a lot, guys. Bye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.